Earlier this week, we gathered at Canuga in North Carolina for our fall clergy conference. We were able to hear from Donald Romanick, president of the Episcopal Church Foundation, about their work in stewardship and about how we as leaders and as parishes can engage in the transformative act of stewardship beyond just the offering plate. I hope you enjoy his opening talk from our time together on this edition of Make, Equip, and Send, the stories that shape EDUSC. Again. And um, let's start with prayer. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we dream too little, when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wilder seas where storms will show your mastery. Where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push back the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. This we ask in the name of our captain, who is Jesus Christ. And that prayer is attributed to Sir Francis Drake. Uh, uh, you know, we sometimes we're not, you know, the, the old explorers and conquistadores did some, some wicked things, but obviously Francis Drake had a prayerful life as well. Uh, is this microphone okay? Is it working for people? Can they hear? Okay. I had the pleasure of hearing uh, Susan Heath uh, preach this morning at Christ Church, uh, Greenville, on that really wonderful passage you all have to deal with today, that, that one of the best parables in the Bible. And she mentioned uh, uh, toward the end that, you know, she had three sermons or three, three kind of themes for her sermons. Well, I have five premises that I want to share with you today. They're not quite sermon themes, uh, but they are the basis of my remarks today and can kind of um, reflect my spiritual, theological, maybe e even ecclesial uh, views. Uh, and also these five premises have helped shape what the Episcopal Church Foundation has been, has been doing and looks to do as we move forward. So number one. By and through our baptism, we have everything we need to be fully equipped to be actively engaged in restoring all people to unity with God and each other. Laypersons are full partners with priests, bishops, and deacons in God's mission in the world. Number two, in our baptismal covenant, we promise, among other things, to continue in the apostles' teaching and prayer, to persevere in resisting evil, to proclaim by word and example the good news, and to seek and serve Christ in all persons, and to strive for justice and peace and respect the dignity of every human being. In order to do these things thoroughly, effectively, and completely, we must be faithful servants of all God's creation and all the gifts a loving and generous God has bestowed upon us. 
Number three, stewardship, like baptism, is an experience of conversion and transformation that profoundly changes our relationship with God, the way we live our lives, and the way we impact the lives of others. Number four, in order to be good stewards and embrace stewardship as a way of life, we need effective clergy and lay leaders to guide and inspire and empower, empower us for this important work of ministry. And finally, number five, we live in a changing world, a changing church, and a changing creation. We need to develop and implement new models of leadership, new models of stewardship, and new models of gathering the people of God in the body of Christ, we call the Episcopal Church. Uh, I will say more about these five premises, but first I want to tell you a story. My maternal grandmother, Katie, immigrated to the United States from Poland in 1912. She was 16 years old, orphaned, and packed all her worldly goods in a steamer truck, which is still one of my most cherished possessions. Lacking any financial resources, Katie was sponsored by a strong-willed, domineering aunt to New Haven, Connecticut, who paid for her passage and incidental expenses with the full expectation of being reimbursed and repaid for her efforts. Upon arriving in New York Harbor, seeing the Statue of Liberty, and taking a train to New Haven, Connecticut, Katie had limited prospects for gainful employment. She even attempted to join the local convent, but was unable to meet the financial dowry required for postulancy. However, she soon became employed as a domestic by a warm, loving Jewish family who taught her English, sent her to citizenship classes, and invested her salary wisely and prudently. After a while, Katie paid back her aunt for the cost of her passage, plus some. Upon encouragement from her employers, Katie confronted her aunt one day to ask her why she was continuing to pay a financial obligation that had been fully satisfied. Her inquiry was met with an angry and cruel slap across the face where my grandmother fell down the stairs. Estranged by her only blood relative in the United States, Katie continued to work and managed to save $900, which is equivalent to about $10,000 in today's money. Not bad for a Polish immigrant domestic. In 1920, Katie married Stanley, another Polish immigrant who had worked in an anthracite coal mines in eastern Pennsylvania, was drafted by the U.S. government and subject to mustard gas in the trenches of World War I France. <clears throat> Stanley returned to New Haven, worked sporadically in a foundry, and died of silicosis, a form of lung cancer at age 42. Katie, as a young widow, needed to support herself and her two daughters without the benefit of any public assistance. One of her daughters spent four years in a sanitarium with tuberculosis, from which she fully recovered. That daughter's my mother, and my mother is celebrating her 97th birthday today. 
Despite these hardships, Katie was always gainfully employed, supported her family, and was extremely generous to her church, her community, and her wide circle of friends. Her hospitality was legendary, and I've heard stories from hundreds of people about my grandmother's hospitality, whereby friends and strangers alike would come to her home at all hours in the day and night for good conversation, good food, and good drink. And there was always food in the refrigerator and uh, other spirits to help people in fellowship. Katie never looked back, never regretted her past, and never returned to her homeland. Her last contact with Poland was when she was informed in 1939 that her only stepbrother had been shot to death when he refused to turn over his farm to the Nazi invaders. On a very regular basis, my grandmother would give me the following advice. She said, always remember, Donald, that God comes first, but after family, money is a close second. I thought that this adage was simply an unsophisticated, uneducated Polish immigrant grandmother's way of explaining how she dealt with the hardships of life. But upon further reflection, and especially after she died in 1975, I realized that this seemingly simplistic advice was my grandmother's way, profound way, of describing her concept and experience of Christian stewardship. What my grandmother was saying and feeling, or more importantly living, that all her possessions, her worldly goods, her American citizenship, her children, her pension from the veterans, and her ability to raise a family and support her community was directly related to an all-generous God. It was because of her relationship with God that Katie was able to share all she had with those people and places she cherished and loved unconditionally. It doesn't get much better than that. My grandmother was a very important person to, my, to me, and to this day, she continues to influence my attitude and outlook on life. Before I delve more, more boldly into the concept of transformational stewardship, I want to talk about the baptismal covenant, because I really think it's relevant to the topic at hand. I don't think we sometimes fully realize or appreciate how radical and revolutionary the 1979 Book of Common Prayer was, especially when it comes to the theology of holy baptism. In the 28th prayer book, during the rite of baptism, which was usually a private affair, and as one of my board members said, often accompanied by a little sip of champagne afterwards, the candidate or, her, or his or her godparents would renounce evil, affirm the creeds, and promise to obey God's word and sacraments and commandments. In the current rite of baptism, which is usually in the context of a Eucharist, all the members of the congregation proclaim the baptismal covenant and promise to continue, resist, repent, proclaim, seek, serve, strive, and respect. These are very powerful action words. The once private service of baptism is now a public celebration and affirmation of the role of all baptized persons, especially and including lay people, in doing the work of ministry in the world. 
And that work of ministry includes proclaiming, teaching, preaching, modeling, incorporating, and living out what it means to be faithful stewards of God's creation. After the actual baptism, the congregation is called upon to welcome the new members of the Christian community with some of the most profound words in the Book of Common Prayer, one of my favorite prayers. We receive you into the household of God, confess the faith of Christ crucified, proclaim his resurrection, and share with us in his eternal priesthood. With these words of welcoming, following the actual promises of the baptismal covenant, all of us witnessing this event are acknowledging our role and responsibility in the church of the world, including that relating to the stewardship of people, places, and things. Significantly, we challenge the newly baptized to share with us in Christ's eternal priesthood, which implies kind of a blurring of the lines of authority and responsibility, including that emanating from ordination and affirms the priesthood of all believers. Stewardship like baptism is a holistic experience of conversion and transformation. To be converted means to shift the way we see, think, and act. It means focusing on atten and, and our attention on things that come from God rather than our own personal and sometimes selfish desires and preoccupations. As Paul tell us, tells us in his letter to Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Are we ready to be converted to this new way of being? Are we willing to respond to an all-loving God with unfettered generosity of body, mind, and spirit? Are we able to let go of those things that keeping, keep us from being all God has called us to be? Are we willing to invest ourselves in all the resources God has given us in the work God is calling us to do? Are we open to a new way of relating to our own gifts and resources and inviting other people to do the same? Are we willing to try new ways of engaging seekers and newcomers in the life of our local faith communities? Are we willing to talk and think about money in new and different ways? While stewardship is not just about money, but as we will be discussing shortly, money is clearly an important symbol, component, and manifestation of how we steward our resources and gifts. In our American culture of consumerism, we are constantly bombarded with overt and subliminal messages of how we should spend our money and what material things we need to have in order to be truly happy. Many of us receive unsolicited invitations to apply with cre for credit cards with promises of airline miles, spending points, and low monthly payments, all for a mere 18% annual interest rate. We are a nation of debt at the federal, state, and local level and seem unable or unwilling to come up with long-term solutions to this critical issue. Rather than a, a culture of spirit of, a culture or a spirit of stewardship, we live in a society of conspicuous consumption, 
planned obsolescence and waste. Those of us actively involved in the work of stewardship, especially those aspects relating to money, and that includes everyone in this room, we need to look carefully at ourselves. What is the place of money in our own lives? Are family conversations about money anxious, angry, hopeful, or satisfying? How do we spend the money we have? Where are we giving our money away? How does having or not having money affect our self-esteem and sense of value? If we do not have much money, do we feel bad about ourselves? Or do we think money doesn't matter at all? If any of this, these questions make us feel uncomfortable, it may be because even in this day and age, talking about money is still a big taboo, especially in the Episcopal Church. We feel much more comfortable talking about sex than we do about money. It is a taboo because the issue of money and how we relate to it goes to the very heart of who we are and what we determine to be important and valuable in our lives. But we don't have any alternative. As Christians, we are called to have these conversations and make a clear choice. We need to remember that as long as you put our trust in money, whether that's an overt statement or a subliminal message, rather than God, we will never fully experience or help bring about the kingdom on earth. And that is what we promise to do in our baptismal covenant. And my friends, that's what you promise to do in your ordination vows. This is not easy stuff. Changing our attitude about money and embracing a theology and philosophy of stewardship as a way of life is very hard work. We need to realize that stewardship, the concept of stewardship, is countercultural, especially in the United States. And dealing with any countercultural, any countercultural thing like peace, justice, reconciliation, unconditional love is challenging and difficult. We can't do it alone. Fortunately, as members of the of a church and local worshiping communities, we have brothers and sisters in Christ to, to help us on this journey. But we need more. In order to become true and faithful stewards, we need effective lay and clergy transformational leaders to preach, teach, inspire, and empower us. And by transformational leaders, I mean those individuals with the skills, abilities, and capacity and attributes to help us move to a place where we are more focused, more mission-based, more service-oriented, and more godlike. Because the ultimate goal of Christian stewardship is to transform the world through Jesus Christ. These individuals, these leaders, we need to raise up, train, and deploy others to lead us in this important work of stewardship. And all this has to be grounded in the good news of the gospel. There are a lot of tasks and roles and responsibilities associated with raising financial resources for ministry, and we're going to talk about those over the next couple of days. 
we clearly need good managers and volunteers and people to get things done and to make sure statements are sent out and all the day-to-day -day work. But it's not just about raising money. It's about raising awareness, changing attitudes, and yes, transforming lives. In order to, for this to happen, we need to develop effective partnerships between lay and clergy leaders to help our people become better stewards of God's gifts. And you all, the priest plays an essential role in this process. One of the critical roles of priests in the Episcopal Church is to help identify, train, empower, and commission lay leaders as partners in the mission and ministry of a local faith community. And this is especially critical when it comes to stewardship. And it is totally unacceptable for a parish priest to abandon or refrain from engaging in this important work of ministry. We all know priests, I'm of course not in this diocese, who say they do not like to talk about money and leave it to matters of stewardship to the vestry. In my opinion, it's comparable for priests to say, I don't like celebrating the Eucharist, administering the sacraments, engaging in um, uh, and, uh, pastoral care, or preaching or teaching. What is the disconnect? Is it a matter of training? Is it an issue of an awareness? Or is it really about a change of heart? That is why stewardship needs to be addressed as a partnership, a partnership between clergy and lay people at all levels of the church, because we're in this together. In his book, Transforming Stewardship, the Reverend Kenning, uh, Chuck Robertson, who works uh, for the presiding bishop, uses the relationship between Paul and Barnabas to illustrate the impact of these effective partnerships. Barnabas first appears as a, as a disciple who sells all his worldly goods and brings the proceeds to the apostles uh, for the good of the wider community. He was clearly a very popular man among those early original apostles. After working behind the scenes, however, Barnabas reappears following the story of Saul's dramatic conversion on his way to Damascus. Robertson suggests that originally the apostles wanted nothing to do with Saul because he wasn't an eyewitness to Jesus. And it was because of Saul's relationship to Barnabas that the apostles said, well, maybe this guy isn't that bad after all. But rather than just simply welcoming Saul into the community and introducing him to the powers that be, Barnabas also identified and nurtured Saul's leadership potential to the point when you read Acts, you see that Barnabas takes a back seat. And instead of Barnabas and Saul, it becomes Paul and Barnabas and then just Paul. Robertson describes Barnabas as a holistic steward, a person who puts others before himself and who makes intentional choices to trust, encourage, and empower. While Barnabas uh, started with his financial contribution, that was only the beginning. Clearly, the ultimate goal of Barnabas 
was to build up the community, raise up leaders so that people can transform themselves, their communities, and even the world. And that needs to be uh, our goal as well. Once we identify, discern, and train these laying clergy transformational leaders for stewardship, what do we have them do? How do we create models and structures and systems that help our leaders, help us become better stewards? How do we teach, preach, and facilitate annual giving campaigns and other initiatives that meet the changing demographics and changing reality of the church? How do we incorporate new methods like social media into our programs? How do we encourage members of our community to share their stories of faith and respond with love and generosity? In order to build up this new community of believers, we need to have a vision and not be afraid to change course, chart a new direction, and ask hard questions. And it may mean, God forbid, that we can no longer do things the way we've always done. We have to avoid the temptation. Sometimes it's a temptation, even in well-resourced parishes, of putting all our energy into the status quo rather than focusing on mission and new ways to be, bring about the coming of the kingdom. If, if we view stewardship in a complete and holistic way, we soon realize that it is very the very heart of what we do as Christians. Remember, stewardship is a transformational experience of conversion, renewal, and change. Therefore, it is a critical aspect of the mission and ministry of the church, along with worship, formation, outreach, evangelism, welcoming, discipleship. Our sessions will be addressing many of these practical aspects. But at this point, I just want to give you a little thought, a little food for thought before we go forward with some of these tomorrow. First of all, as my previous uh, comments indicate, we as Anglicans and Episcopalians have a wonderful theology of stewardship. We just don't put our money where our mouth is, quite literally. And we have problems operationalizing this wonderful theology. In many respects, we're doing stewardship or the annual campaign the way we did it in 1964. Basically, our approach is to send a letter in the mail in early fall, maybe have a stewardship sermon or a chancel talk, and expect everyone to fill out their, their pledge cards by All Saints Sunday, indicating what they're going to pledge for the entire next year. And we hope and pray that the sum of the pledges will support a budget for next year, even though we haven't quite yet developed next year's budget because we're still trying to balance this year's budget. Sound familiar? And we're surprised when this doesn't work. Why do we expect old ways of doing stewardship to work in light of the incredible changes in technology and society and the way we communicate? We ourselves have changed. Why is it that in our own personal lives we could incorporate new ways of doing and being 
but we often fail to embrace that in our local communities. At least up north, maybe not so much here, we still have, you know, the golden days. Oh, in the golden days, we had 600 people, 600 kids in Sunday school, and the plate was overflowing. I mean, the church only holds 200. Uh, once my senior warden, uh, an elderly gentleman, said, if there was a golden age, I must have blinked and missed it. But the issue is, how do we embrace the stories of these people who came before us, who are still here, who want to tell it? And rather than saying, well, it wasn't true, there might be some wonderful insights they can give us as we move forward. We also have to look at new ways of what it means to be the body of Christ called the Episcopal Church at our local, local faith communities. Here's some questions. How do we teach the biblical and theological principles of stewardship in a relevant, appropriate, and contextual way? Despite the seismic changes in society, people still need and want to hear the good news of the gospel and how they can be transformed into good stewards of creation through a relationship with an all-generous God. But we need to meet them where they are and not where we think they ought to be. There's a hunger out there for this kind of message. You know, given climate change issues and political issues, people want to know, how can I live out the gospel in my daily life and work and under these incredibly stressful conditions. While we in the Episcopal Church like to consider ourselves a big tent and welcome everyone into our tent, which I agree with, how do we articulate what it means to be part of the community? In other words, what are the expect expectations of membership, including giving? It is perfectly appropriate to, to let newcomers know what our expectation of giving is in the Episcopal Church. Same time, while we always need to welcome seekers, sinners, and strangers, our goal is to develop and nurture disciples. And discipleship, like membership, has its privileges and responsibilities. As clergy leaders and lay leaders, we need to share our faith journeys talk about our patterns of giving, preach and teach about stewardship year-round, and maybe even make our commitment public. All of these, all of these elements are essential if we're going to change the culture. We need to be able to tell our own stories and empower others to tell stories. The storytelling is critical for discipleship, it's critical for stewardship, and quite frankly, it's critical for we are what we do as Christians. As we know, uh, Jesus told stories all the time. How do we help people integrate their faith and their finances? Many of our people are financially stressed. Many of our people have, you know, credit card debt or fancy car loans that they can't pay off. Or uh, even in wealthier communities, people who are carrying mortgages that they can't really afford. How do we help them become better stewards of their own resources 
as we seek to help, help make them make generous, help them make, be generous to build up the kingdom. These are not easy questions, and you know the answers are are difficult and challenging. But we need to address them if we're going to move into this next phase of what it means to be the church. In addition to holding on fantasies of golden ages, we also have the fantasy of a magic bullet for stewardship campaigns and annual giving. Much like people are looking for the perfect curriculum for Christian formation. There's no magic bullet. Clearly, there are some best practices, effective techniques, approaches that we'll be discussing, but this is not easy work. This is not easy work. And most of what you do is not easy work. And we have to realize, like shoes, one size doesn't fit all. There are clearly geographic, socioeconomic, demographic, and general different uh, generational differences among the people in our congregation, which also impacts how we ask them to be faithful stewards. And we'll be talking about this tomorrow. And we really need to focus on leadership development because as we build up lay leaders as partners in ministry, stewardship needs to be a critical part of that component. It's also when we look at newcomers and new emerging leaders, they can give us a lot of insights into why they come into our faith communities, why they stay, why they give, empower them, nurture them, incorporate them into the leadership of the community. We also need to engage the wider community in talking about why they belong, why they volunteer, why they participate. You know, the old adage, if you ask someone for money, they'll give you advice. If you ask someone for advice, they'll give you money. Reach out to constituencies and groups of people and people you don't hear from. Pray, seek counsel from the elders of the community. And before people are going to kind of open their pocketbooks, they want to feel part of the community especially if you're a newcomer or even if you've been there for 50 years and no one's ever asked you what you think about what's going on. I also want to say a few words about budgeting. In many, in most congregations, people don't see the budget until the annual meeting. This doesn't make sense. I mean, uh, I realize budgeting is a complex process. But you need to give people some sense of where, where your spending priorities are, even now, as you go out and start your annual campaign, if you really want them to engage in your work. Remember, money follows mission. And we'll hear tomorrow, especially with gen generational differences, younger people give to mission, not to institutions. And they may not be as generous if they don't know where the money's going, even at this stage in the game. And I wouldn't be surprised if some people said, I'm not going to pledge until I see where the money's going. So if you want all the pledges in by All Saints Day, we, might, we, we may need to shift the, the budget calendar. Also, do some analysis of where your givers are. Who are the new people? 
What are the demographic changes? Who's moved away? Who's died? Again, engaging them and the, engaging people in the life of the congregation before you ask them for money. There's also kind of, you need to have a strategic approach to, to your pledge plan and stewardship. You know, the whole idea of year-round stewardship, and if you have a stewardship committee, it shouldn't just deal with the annual campaign. They need to look at stewardship of creation and individual stewardship. And, you know, for example, springtime is a good time to talk about environmental stewardship. Maybe summer is a time, uh, Lent is a time to talk about you know, personal wellness and, and, and self-discipline. Also, this is also an opportunity, as I said earlier, to engage some of the old-timers, having them tell their stories. And not so that people can feel guilty for the old days, but, you know, when someone tells a story of the past, you can say, clearly you love this place. You want to see it continue to thrive and grow. Thank you for your generosity. and Thank you for telling your story. We need to personalize our annual appeal campaigns. You know, uh, try not to use boilerplates or generic salutations. What I really love is when people say, you know, dear parishioners, it's that time of year. I mean, quite frankly, if, if, if uh, I, I expect, I expect a more personalized letter say, Gee, Donald, we know you're busy and we know you travel all, all over the country, but we're really glad that you're part of Trinity Church in Hartford, and we appreciate your past generosity. You know, with, with, with modern technology, let's say you do that for the top 25 pledges in your congregation. That can make a big difference, but we'll talk about that. And stewardship is just not about money. It's about changing ourselves, our communities, and the world. We have to look at our congregation in this broader sense as well. Ultimately, however, it's, it's out of our control. At some point, we have to leave it to God and God's abundant generosity that what we're doing is going to be blessed in God's eyes. I want to return to my, uh, my theme and metaphor of baptism. In the early church, um, the ancient church, when new Christians were being preparing to be baptized after the, the catechumenate, they would stand on the edge of a large baptismal pool and remove their worldly clothes. Maybe nude baptism is something we might want to reconsider again. And upon entering the water, they would do the renunciations, which have developed over time, but renun renouncing Satan and all sinful desires, and then they would be submerged and baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then come out and greet, greet God and proclaim their faith in Jesus, and don a white robe, a new robe of symbolic of abandoning their old selves and becoming one with Christ. Stewardship means getting in touch with what baptism is all about and its power of conversion and transformation. Are we ready to take the plunge? Are we ready to remove our worldly clothing and don the, the garment of new ways of being and doing? 
We are not owners, but stewards. Stewards of creation, stewards of our own bodies, stewards of time, treasure, stewards of all that we are and all that we have, stewards of one another. I believe that my grandmother Katie understood this and embraced this concept in her own simple way. But like Katie's challenging yet rich life, uh, my own stewardship journey has had its ups and downs, its twists and turns, its successes and disappointments. Yet with God's help, like you, I continue to move forward. As we uh, experience this conference and then go back to the routines of our daily life in our parishes, let us renew our personal commitment and our community commitment to Christian stewardship as a way of life, as a way of living out God's kingdom here on earth. Son and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you.